Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Ephesians chapter 4, we've already covered the first three verses. So let's read those and then I'm going to read verse 1 through 6. And we're going to start in verse 4. We'll see how far we can get. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's go through these. Verse 1 through 3, just to summarize real quickly, a couple of, of, of big things that are there is this is Paul introducing how we're supposed to live very first thing he says in verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, which basically means we need to walk in humility. Peter said it, you know, God will, uh, we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due season. Because if we don't humble ourselves, he will humble us. God will pull his hand back and let circumstances humble us if we won't. But the key to it is verse 3, so that we can endeavor, we need to work hard to keep the unity that God's already given us. And that was the whole theme or one of the themes of the first three chapters. The whole world was in disunity. Everybody was against everybody else. Uh, it reminds me of, of today's politics. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. That's everybody's aim politically, it seems, in the world today. That's how it was back in the first century, too. There were, everybody talked about their divisions. They, they, they couldn't, um, <clears throat> they didn't want to, let's put it that way. And I, I do think that's the spirit of the world. They didn't want to try to join together. They wanted to stand alone and choose up sides. It's the reason that we've, you know, for all of the uh, peaceniks, good intentions, it's the reason that we have never had world peace and never will have world peace people are divisive but in the body of Christ we have unity because Christ is our unifier he recreates us all brand new and Paul gets into that and he's going to go through in these three verses uh, he sets the sets forth the basis for our Christian unity the first one is right there there is one body he's talking about the body of Christ you know, there are um, physical, um, medical disorders where your body, parts of your body rebel. Probably the most pernicious, cancer. You know, one cell can decide, okay, I'm, I'm not going to um, divide and do my job. I'm just going to start dividing, dividing, dividing. And suddenly that can lead to, you know, total destruction of everything of your life because one cell got out of order 
and the rest of the body. In fact, this was the amazing thing I learned the last few years I taught. I would go to these um, genetic update conferences, and one of the things that they have realized when they really studied the genetics of cancer that even in your 20s, most people have had cancer at least half a dozen to a dozen times by the time you get into your 20s. But your body is very good at recognizing that as an abnormal cell, and your body goes and attacks it and kills it. The, the, the reason that people develop cancers um, is it's a failure of your immune system, which in some sense is part of what the body of Christ needs to do. We need to police our own, and we need to, well, Paul said it in, at the end of verse 3, we need to endeavor to keep this unity, and when one part of the body breaks the unity, the rest of the body needs to come together and say, no, we need to keep unified. Um, it's just, I don't know, I, I tried to find out who um, or where, the, who made this quote, and when I looked it up today, most people attribute it to Augustine, but I read somewhere else that someone who was a, a um, what, an authority on Augustine said it's in none of Augustine's writings, but it is an old saying that I've heard for years, and I know you all probably heard it too, it, it basically says, in essentials, unity. In doubtful matters, liberty. In all things, charity. There are, there, we are one body. We can't, we can't turn and fight one another. But we have to understand the unity is in the essentials. And to be honest with you, the essential is, for me, it's Romans chapter 10 salvation by faith when you get very far away from that i'm not so sure that that a lot of other things matter i think i said it a few weeks ago i see people i, I know one very prominent well-known uh minister pastor who has just come right out and said that con contemporary christian worship music is of the devil, and if you if you sing those songs in your church, you're probably in a church that is heretical, and, and most likely all of you are going to hell. And I'm thinking, really, we're going to divide the church over styles of music? I, I, I personally love some of the old hymns, but I grew up in a three hymns, no anointing. You just come in and you sing. It's a prelude to get into the preaching, there was no anointing on it. You really didn't come into the presence of God. And I've been in, I've been in some contemporary services where it was all performance too. It's not, it's the spirit behind the music. It's are you worshiping God? And if you are, I don't care what the form is. If, if, if you're worshiping God, God will show up. But I'm certainly not going to divide the church over that. I, I don't mean to be critical, but I know some, some dear brothers in the Lord that they will tell you King James Version of the Bible is the only version of the Bible. 
that you should ever read. It's the only one that's anointed. One, I remember Brother Hagin told the story of one, one older lady that um, he, he quoted something out of a different version and she fussed at him after the church. She said, you know, if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And that's almost the attitude that some of these people have. They're, they're, we need to, and, and even in things that we disagree on, we need to walk in love. It's not worth separating. And I, I look at it as in the same way that I look at marriage. I um, just, to, just today on Facebook, I saw one of my former students, bless her heart, she's pregnant probably within a month or so of giving birth. And I've seen posts for months about her pregnancy and about how much she loves her boyfriend. And today they announced I got married. Her name changed, which is great. But I'm thinking we've, we've got this backwards. I mean, it used to be it was pretty clear in our culture. You get married, you have kids. Now it's you have kids and you might get married. But what I thought was, now that you're married, now's when the work starts. It's not easy to stay together. If you don't walk in love towards your spouse, you're going to have a hard time staying married. Because we are very, very different. I don't know of a successful marriage that there's one key. It's called W-O-R-K and L-O-V-E. You work at walking in love and just not. And, and, and it basically, you have to overlook things. And I've, I've used this example before. If you ask my wife and I, and we're honest about it, I will tell you that I give in to her wishes a lot more than she gives in to mine. And if you ask her, she will tell you the same thing. And I've talked to all kinds of couples, and it's, it's almost a universal truth. The reason being, there are times that she doesn't know I'm giving in because I never express what I really want. I just, okay, it's not a big deal. I talked to somebody today. We were, we were just having a discussion about some, something else, and I said, you know, you need to be careful what hills you're willing to die on. Some things are just not worth fighting over. Well, she does the same thing. She will give in to, you know, when we have disagreements. And it's not like we're in constant disagreement. But we do have disagreements. We're two different people and we have, two diff we have different likes and dislikes. She will give in a lot more. We need to do that with the body of Christ. We need to, we can't be, we can be unified without, without being uniform. And it's the problem, and we've all seen this, and I don't mean this critical, but you, you can just about, you walk down the mall or some public place, and you can see, and it's almost always the ladies, because it all, almost always in churches that get really religious and really structured, they put lots of restrictions on how the women can look and not the men. And that I'll tell you right there that there's a problem but you can just you can can see certain ladies you'll see them in out in public and you know this is the type of church they go to and they're all trying to be uniform 
and they're not really on the inside. They've, 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 they've brought this outside uniformity to try to let people know that they are united on the inside, and I've been around some of them. There's not a lot of unity there. Anyway, we need, there is only one body. We are in the body of Christ here on the earth if you're alive. Part of the reason we get to the second part, there's one body and one spirit. All of that is the, the reason there can only be one spirit and the reason we have to be united is everybody that's in the body of Christ is being or should be being led by the Holy Spirit. Without the spirit, without the breath, body's dead. And I said this, you know, I think it was Sunday when I was preaching. You don't have a lot of quality conversations with corpses. If they don't have breath, they can't talk. Well, it's the spirit of God that gives us the, the life to the body of Christ. And we need to, part of endeavoring, verse 3, to keep that unity is to continue to be led by the Holy Spirit. And I, I want to, let me read this. And I get real, I'm, I'm real careful about, it's not a translation, but the, the, the um, paraphrase, the message. But this is Galatians 5. And there's, it's 18 verses because this is Paul talking about us walking in liberty because he's, in Galatians, he's really coming down on people that are practicing the law or trying to substitute the law for grace. But he gets in at the bottom, and I just love the way, uh, especially this, the, the last few verses where it talks about being led by the Spirit. But this is how Paul, how the message uh, translates Galatians 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Christ has set us free to live a free life, so take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. I'm emphatic about this. The moment any one of you submits to circumcision, because that was the, the one issue of, of the Judaizers, and this is not the message, but I've seen that for most people that really get hung up on legalism, they usually have one or two rules that are way above all the rest, and you need to conform to these one or two, and the rest we don't worry about because they're not that big a deal. When Jesus said it very plainly, the two pieces of the law that everything hangs on, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That everything rotates on those love God and love people. If you can do that, the rest of it takes care of itself. But for this, for the church at Galatia, it was you have to be circumcised if you're going to be a Christian. And Paul was emphatic. He says, I'm emphatic about this. The moment any of you submits to circumcision or to any other rule-keeping system, at that same moment, Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. 
I repeat my warning. The person who accepts the ways of circumcision trades all the advantages of the free life in Christ for the obligations of the slave life of the law. I suspect you would never intend this, but this is what happens. When you attempt to live out or live by your own religious plans and projects, you are cut off from Christ. You fall out of grace. Meanwhile, we expectantly wait for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. That's what God's called us to. I love the way they phrase that, a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior, faith expressed in love. You were running superbly. Who cut in on you, deflecting you from the two true course of obedience? This detour doesn't come from the one who called you into the race in the first place. Please don't toss this off as insignificant. It only takes a minute amount of yeast, you know, to permeate an entire loaf of bread. Deep down, the master has given me confidence that you will not defect. But the one who is upsetting you, whoever he is, will bear the divine judgment. As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision as I did in those pre-Damascus road days, that's absurd. Why would I still be persecuted then if I were preaching that old message? No one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then. It would be so watered down it wouldn't matter one way or the other. Why don't these agitators, obsessive as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? It's absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? And this is the key. I've read all that to get to these last three verses. My counsel is this. Live freely animated and motivated by God's Spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness, for there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical, so that you cannot live at times one way and at other times another way, according to how you feel on a given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? What he says there, live freely, animated and voted, or motivated by God's Spirit. Basically, New King James says we need to live or we need to be led by the Spirit of God. That's what this means when it says there's one body and there's one spirit. The Holy Spirit is our guide. And, and if we're led by him, we don't have to worry about the rest of the stuff. And then the rest of verse 4 says, Just as you have been called with one hope of your calling, 
that one hope basically is is hearkening down we're there in in verse um the end of verse 4 jump down to verse 11 still in chapter 4 he's going to expand a little more when he gets there he said as he himself speaking of jesus gave some to be apostles some prophets some evangelists some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is our call. That's the unity that he wants us to preserve. These fivefold gifts equip us to do the work of the ministry, which is to walk in love. And it, it's gained through the knowledge of the Son of God so that we will grow up the body of Christ and come to, it says, perfect man. Most people think of that as no imp imperfections or no, um, there are no flaws. Well, in one sense, the body of Christ has no flaws because we are Christ's body. But at the same time, the body of Christ is made up of, of people that are born again in the earth today. And all of us still have our flesh, so we still have limits. So I think what he's talking about here when he says come to a perfect man, it means come to a mature or a, a full man so that the body is actually walking in the call that he's, that he's called us to so that we can come up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We need to be completing the entire ministry that that Jesus has called us to. In fact, in, where is it? In Hebrews chapter 6, Paul talks about this hope. He says, well, he's talking about being motivated by the Spirit there. But in, in verse, the end of verse um, 4, he says there's one hope in our calling. Our methods may be different. Our beliefs can even be different and non-essentials. But we're all striving towards that same goal of a world redeemed in Christ. The hope that we're talking about, to quote Hebrews 6, starting in verse 9, he said, this is Paul talking to us. He says, we're convinced of better things in your case. And he, prior to that in chapter 6, he's talking about, we need to leave the elementary things and go on to maturity. And he's saying here, I'm convinced that you guys are already going on to maturity. And we need to look at the things that accompany salvation. Even though we speak as we do, for God is not so unjust as to forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for his cause when you served and continue to serve fellow believers. But we want each one of you to demonstrate the same eagerness to the very end for the fulfillment of your hope. Hope plays a huge part. Hope is our picture of where we're going. Verse 12 says, so that you will not be lazy. That is the, the Greek word nothros, which is where we get our, our uh, English word for neutral. So when he says lazy, he doesn't necessarily mean we're just laying about all the time. What he means is we're, we're, we're in neutral. We're not going forward or backward. We're just kind of drifting. 
Well, we need to quit being drifting, but be imitators of those who by faith and perseverance inherit the promises. Inheriting the promises, he's going to get more into it when he gets to Hebrews chapter 11, where he says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. We do that by faith and perseverance. We keep, keep working on that. Verse 13, he gives God as the example. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you greatly and increase your descendants abundantly. And thus, by patient endurance, Abraham received what had been promised. So if it was promised... He had to hope for it. Verse 16, for people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts to an end all dispute, because God wanted to show more clearly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchanging nature of his purpose. He confirmed it with an oath, so that through two unchangeable facts in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge might have strong incentive to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the life. It's psyche. It's your soul, mind, will, and emotions. Hope anchors our mind. That's what he's saying here. We have back in, in Ephesians 4, verse 4, he says, you have been called with one hope of your calling. That one hope of our calling is to fulfill what God has put to us so that we can know that we are, that God is for us. He said, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast, a hope that enters the inner shrine or the holy of holies behind the veil where Jesus entered on our behalf as a forerunner, having become high priest for all time according to the order of Melchizedek. What he's saying is this hope goes into the Holy of Holies. We know that we are like him. Therefore, we can be sure of our calling. We can be sure and hold on to the unity of, this, of the body and the spirit because we know that this life isn't our own. He goes on and, and, and sits down even more in verse 5. He says, there is one Lord. Obviously, the one Lord there is Jesus. The church, Christian church, now there are a lot of creeds out there. I, I'm, I'm not much of a creed person. I've, I've gone through and read several of them, the Westminster Confession, that's the one I remember the most. But it's been so long I don't really worry about it. But really, if there was a creed that the New Testament church had, it was Jesus is Lord. That is, and, and particularly the New Testament used that phrase because in the Roman world, at several different points, more towards the end of the first century rather than at the beginning of the first century. At the beginning of the first century, the, the Roman world was still a republic. It wasn't until probably a, a little bit after the death of Christ that they went to 
you know, the emperor became a total dictator. But it didn't take long once total, the, the emperor became a dictator that the, the emperor claimed divinity. And if you were in the military or you're a Roman citizen, part of what you were required to do was to go and make sacrifice, especially when you had guys like Caligula, Nero was even worse than, than and, and in fact, it was funny when Bridget was here ministering, she, she made reference to a verse that said that we were to, in Timothy, that we were to pray for, for those in authority over us. At the time that Paul wrote that, Nero was emperor. He was speaking specifically of the emperor Nero, who Nero had made a declaration that if you were a Roman citizen, or even if you weren't a Roman citizen, if you were in Roman territory, you had to go make sacrifice and declare that Nero was Lord, meaning he is a, the God-man. The God Christians wouldn't do that because we declare Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the God-man. And there were a lot of Christians that ended up being martyred because they would not make the declaration that Jesus is Lord. In fact, the, the New Testament, I looked it up and I'm, the numbers are, are a little bit off, but there's almost 200 times that the New Testament makes reference to the statement, Jesus is Lord, or something similar to that. It is the declaration that the New Testament church makes. We have one Lord, and his name is Jesus. He is the God-man. And then the next part of that, there's one Lord, one faith. That is represented best in Romans chapter 10. If you want to go back there real quick. I already referenced this briefly. But in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 6, well, verse 5, Romans 10, 5 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, saying, The man who does those things shall live by them. Verse 6, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does this righteousness of faith say? This is what it says. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That is an extension and a, a, an expansion on Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So when Paul says here in verse 5, there's one Lord, one faith, he's not talking about the operation of faith. He's talking about having faith 
in Jesus Christ, being a believer, having confessed that Jesus is Lord and surrendering your life. Because it's hard to make, there are a lot of people that want Jesus as Savior. Very few people make the next step and want him as Lord. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't question anyone's salvation, but I do question if you only want him as Savior, whether that is enough for salvation. Because Jesus, want, he is Lord, and he wants us to recognize him as Lord. And then Paul goes on. He said, one baptism. Again, this, a lot of people look at that and want to argue water baptism. That's where I go back to, to the, um, that statement I used earlier, in essentials unity, in doubtful matters liberty, in all things charity. I have seen so many different formulas for water baptism. Some immerse, some sprinkle, some do infant baptism, some do adult baptism. I know churches that will only baptize in the name of Jesus, some that will only baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I know churches that will baptize you backwards and then also frontwards. I know some that will only baptize you backwards and some that will only baptize you frontwards. And I'm looking at it and thinking, I don't care. The thief on the cross didn't get baptized in water, and yet Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So water baptism isn't a requirement for salvation. So what I think Paul is talking about here is not being baptized in water, but being baptized in the Spirit. And, and I'm not talking about being baptized in the Spirit in the sense that Pentecostals and Charismatics look at it, where that's where you get the evidence of speaking in tongues. I'm talking about in, well, John chapter 20, when Jesus came to his disciples, it says he, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of the Spirit. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians six seventeen. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. That's the baptism. It's being baptized into the body of Christ, being baptized into the believers in Christ, into the family of God, which those things aren't, that's not my topic for tonight, but the, 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 the church, the body of Christ, and the family of God not all exactly the same, but they all are believers. And then verse 6, he finishes it and says, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. That, for me, is the clincher. This talks about the Godhead. It's interesting, almost always when Paul mentions the Trinity, and he doesn't... Paul, Paul doesn't ever come right out and say, I'm a Trinitarian, but he does preach about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But he almost always uses them in that order. He puts the Father at the head, the, the Son second, and the Holy Spirit third. In, this three ver- in these three verses right here, he reverses the order. He starts out in verse 4 talking about the Spirit of God. There's one body and one spirit. 
And then in verse 5, he says there's one Lord, which is Jesus. And now he brings the Father into it. So he is talking about the Trinity, but he, he's, he's really emphasizing more than, than the Trinity. He's emphasizing the unity of the Trinity. Because he says there, there is one God and Father of all. Well, if there's one God and Father, then, and I, this is the question that Unitarians come up with, how can you have a trinity if you have one God? Well, there's three persons, three personalities that make up one God. They're all separate, but, they're, but they are one. When you see the Holy Spirit, that's all of the God there is. When you see the Son, there's all of the God there is. When you see the Father, that's all of the God there is. And yet they are all three God and they're all three one. And it's a mystery that I don't think humans will understand until we get to heaven and actually see the Trinity. Paul here is emphasizing, first of all, the unity of the Godhead, but then also the superiority of the Godhead because he says the, the God and Father of all, He's, and in, in, in context here, he's talking about God being the father of all believers. Now, in one sense, God is the father of all mankind, but not in the sense that, they, that he is the father of us that are believers in Christ. He is my father in a totally different dimension than he is the father of an unbeliever. And the main reason I can say that is, Jesus, when he was on the earth, looked at the Pharisees and some unbelievers and said, you're of your father, the devil. So God is still Lord of all, but he's not their Lord voluntarily. He's their Lord because he is God of the universe and he will impose his will at some point in time. And they will submit to that will when that time comes, primarily at the white throne judgment. But he is... The God and Father of all, he is above all, he is supreme, he's through all and in all, which means you can't, there's no place you can go that God isn't there. He, he is omnipresent. He just exists throughout all of this, but in particular, he, is, he exists in the church. And part of the, the unity, and that's what the, this is the basis of the unity that Paul talked about in the first three verses, the major point of that unity is that we know that it started with God, it ends with God, and it's all God in between. The Holy Spirit testifies to it, Jesus the Son testifies to it, and now God the Father testifies to it. And they all say, look, you have to be united. You have to quit squabbling over the dumbest things. All three persons of the Godhead are saying, you better get along. <laughs> and if you don't, I, and personally, I think that's probably the reason there are a lot of problems with individuals in the church because they just won't get along with other church members. They refuse to walk in love. It's a dangerous thing.
to refuse to walk in love. It, it really is. Not that God's out to get you. I've said it before. If God was out to get you, he knows where you lived and you'd be God. But walk, getting out of the love of God puts you in a position where the, the devil will just beat your brains in constantly. I don't want to be there. So I want to work on this. I want to know I'm going to endeavor. I'm going to do everything I can to keep the unity of the Spirit and keep the unity in the body of Christ. Everything that's within me, I need to walk in love towards others, especially members of the body of Christ. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.